0: Well, it's been a while now, so let's just say a while ago, uh, I was listening to uh, an interview on the radio while I was driving from one place to another, and what I heard has just stuck with me in a way that, you know, only important things tend to stick with me. Um, In this interview, it was a psychologist by the name of Jillian Sandstrom, and uh, she was telling a story about a relationship that she had with uh, a woman that she called, quote, the hot dog lady. Um, Jillian's story, uh, Dr. Sandstrom's story, maybe I should say, um, was uh, was a surprisingly beautiful one to me. Uh, she was, at the time uh, that the story was taking place, a uh, a student. And she said she was a graduate student about 10 years older than anybody else that was there. She didn't feel like she had a ton of connections where she was. She was feeling very isolated and lonely. But every day, she would walk from one classroom at one part of uh, the campus to another classroom on another part of campus, and as she did, she would cross paths with a woman who was selling hot dogs at a cart at an intersection. And one day, for whatever reason, as Sandstrom walked from one place to another, she waved at the hot dog lady, and the hot dog lady waved back at her. And then... Every day from that day forward, they would smile and wave at each other as she was commuting from one place to another. But she said that one day, as she was commuting, uh, just as she always did, by foot from one building on campus to another building on campus, um, the hot dog lady wasn't there. I don't actually know what happened to the hot dog lady. Maybe she changed professions. Maybe she was just working you know, in another parking lot or intersection. I'm not sure. But Sandstrom said that uh, she just, like the heaviness... That, that she felt upon arriving at the next uh, her next destination, not meeting, not smiling, not waving at this woman uh, in between, that the heaviness that she felt in that moment was surprising. And she used a term that I think I might have heard before, but had never really stopped to consider. She referred to her relationship with the hot dog lady as a weak tie. Uh, back in the 1970s, there was an article that was written that d- divided relationships into what it called strong ties and weak ties. Honestly, I would not consider what Sandstrom had with the hot dog lady to be a relationship. When I think of a relationship, I think of relationships that are mutually accountable, where there's a ton of loyalty, where you burn a lot of emotional energy on building and sustaining them. And then you're there. You're each other's people. You support each other. Um, These types of relationships, what I understand are called strong ties, sit at the root of families, of spouses, of coworkers, Sports teams, they sit at the root of of lots of things. Uh, And in particular, for me and the work that I do in the church, I think about what we do and how often I want to help people find relationships that uh, represent strong ties, right? Uh, In my last two decades of ministry, almost um, strong ties I see are like the locus of life transformation. So if someone's life is going to be changed or transformed, often there's a relationship that sits in the middle of it where people can say and hear hard things from and with each other what she was talking about was the strength of weak ties and she started talking about weak ties you know they're maybe more passing or casual they're not as emotionally intense um, as a strong tie might be, um, it could be a, a coworker, or a person that you kind of encounter in your everyday life, uh, a favorite customer that comes into your restaurant, or a favorite person that's helping you check out at the grocery store. Like, could be pretty much uh, any sort of normal relationship that you have with someone where there's a there's a recognition of one another's uh, presence, even if, like the hot dog lady, you don't necessarily know their name, haven't even had a conversation, right? Uh, and that these weak ties can can offer a lot of things to us. In fact, as I was listening to Sandstrom talk about weak ties, I actually flashed back uh, a year or so before that, uh, thinking about a sermon that Pastor Hope preached in the middle of the pandemic. And she was talking about how, you know, in the pandemic, at least this was my experience, I did not lose a lot of strong ties. My strong tie relationships were maintained and in some cases were strengthened, right? Uh, I was literally in the house all day, every day with some of my strong ties. Um, But also, You know, I was on Zoom with my coworkers. Uh, I would find times and ways to connect with old friends that I hadn't seen in a while. And we didn't have a ton of activities. So lo and behold, we had time for each other. Like strong ties were not the problem for me. And again, I know that this is just my experience. But what I did lose was a lot of weak ties. And Pastor Hope was talking about how like in our bodies, having these weak tie relationships with people remind us that the world is actually a safe place. I think that the example uh, she used was uh, when you are checking out at the uh, grocery store and you smile at each other and uh, the person that's helping you get your groceries and get out the door, uh, they don't, you know, they're not coming to fisticuffs. They're not trying to (laughs) to harm you in any way. You're like, okay, this perfect stranger is not threatened by me. This is a place of safety that we're in. And that it actually serves to like, lower the anxiety in our fight or flight senses, right? There's something beautiful about the fact that a perfect stranger is not an enemy, right? That we, the world is actually a safer place than we think. And that we lost almost all of our weak ties kind of in one fell swoop. One um, fell swoop, F-E-L-L, I think is how you say it. That was my Southern accent coming out. Um, the more I considered the role of weak ties in my life, Uh, the more I recognize just what a pivotal role they play. Uh, I I probably spend more time (laughs) seeing the weak ties in my world um, than I do in deep and intense, strong tie relationships. And it was fascinating to me that the weakest of the relationships that we have still play such a pivotal role. Like relationships I wouldn't probably even call a relationship still play such a, an immense role in our lives. And it was a reminder for me, as I've sort of continued to process and, and sit with the things that I was hearing from Sandstrom, like, just a reminder that we are designed from the dirt up as relational beings. We are people who are designed to know others and to be known by others. And, and to me, that makes total sense. A couple of months ago, we were in a sermon series. We talked about what it meant to be made in the image of God. We spent a lot of time talking about that. We're made in the image of a God who is a relational being, right? You can think about that from a Trinitarian standpoint. But I think that there's this beautiful undercurrent throughout all of Scripture that reminds us over and over and over again that our God, the God that we worship, is a God that knows us and desires to be known by us. And that this is like a really unique and distinct thing from all of the other sort of little G gods of the world. Contrary to those gods, our God does not see us as a pawn to be moved about the chessboard of life. Our God does not see us as puppets to kind of, you know, have the conflicts that the gods are having in the heavens, but just on earth like puppeteers. Our God does not see us as a number, but that we are known by name. And that we can know God by name. That we are known by and can know God. That is a crazy, beautiful thing. It's just an undercurrent that sits throughout much of Scripture. And that that reality impacts our life all the time in ways that we might not slow down long enough to pay attention to. I want to give you just one example of that. And we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, in this sermon series called Known. um, Just unpacking exactly this undercurrent that runs throughout all of scripture. I want to start in the Old Testament uh, with a character that you may know of, uh, even if you've never read the Bible before, this is your first time in worship. Uh, His name is Moses. Uh, He hung out at a burning bush and had a conversation with God, right? Uh, Maybe you would recognize this story from Charlton Heston fame, uh, or maybe you've seen DreamWorks. The Prince of Egypt, I think it's called, a little bit more recently than Charlton Heston. Um, But we often know of Moses' story at the bush, and I'm going to read that story right here. I want you to hear the words right in scripture, but then I want to talk about Moses' backstory and why this passage I think is so beautiful uh, and relevant for us today. Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law Jethro, the priest of Midian, which was like a holy place for the people of God, the Israelites. Moses led the flock beyond the wilderness not just to or into the wilderness but beyond the wilderness on the other side of the wilderness and he came to a place called horeb a mountain of god there the angel of the lord appeared to him in a flame out of a fire out of a flame of fire out of a bush he looked and saw that the bush was blazing and yet it was not consumed it wasn't being burned up and so moses said i must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up when the lord saw that moses had turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and presumably Moses responds, here I am. And then God says, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God said further, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face uh, because he was afraid to look at God, which was a good call Because at that point in time, if you saw God, you would go blind or die or both. So great call, Moses. But while Moses is shielding his eyes, God's eyes are wide open. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. The people of God were slaves in Egypt at the hand of Pharaoh. And I have come to deliver them, to rescue them from the Egyptians. I have seen their, I know their suffering. I've come to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them out out of that land to a land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which would have been indication of sort of abundance. Skipping down a little bit, he says, so uh, God says, So come, I will send you to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign for you that it's I who sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. But God, but Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask, well, what is God's name? What should I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Some translations say I am that I am. Some other transla- translations say I will be who I will be. But it's the verb to be is what sits at the root here or in Hebrew, Yahweh. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my title for all generations. And then the first word of the next line says, go. Now, you may have known part and piece of that story, but there's actually a lot of story that occurs in the first three chapters, the first two chapters leading up to chapter 3 of the book called Exodus, and you can go read it if you want to. It's actually a fairly interesting story to, to read the the all you know all the details of. But Moses, when Moses was born, was born at a time when the king of Egypt, or Pharaoh, uh, was afraid of the Israelites, the people of God. They were becoming too numerous, and Pharaoh was afraid they were going to form an uprising and try to overthrow the land. And so Pharaoh did what many leaders of Pharaoh's time would have done, which was to try and exterminate, or to at least tamp down the number of Israelites that existed. And so Pharaoh passed a law that said every Jewish male that is born should be killed. Should be killed. And Moses' name was on that list. Uh, but there were two midwives, Shipra and Puha, who refused to do Pharaoh's bidding and continually found ways to spare the life of Hebrew children that were born. And Moses is one of the kids that they helped deliver to bring into the world as midwives. Um, Now, uh, what you know maybe about the story is that Moses was placed in a basket and sent down the river and that the king's daughter was bathing in the river and took him, picked him up and took him home. What you might not know is that it it wasn't as third person as it might seem. They saw the king's daughter bathing in the river and they happened to just put Moses right upstream of that and then send him down to the river right where she was. And he wasn't out of their sight. Moses's mom walked down the river casually just beside him. And so as soon as the Pharaoh's daughter picks up this cute little baby and says, oh, it's a cute little baby. Can I take him home? Can I take him home? Can I take him home? Someone says to her, hey, listen, you can take the baby home, but you can't feed him. You know, you're not ready to feed a child. And so she starts looking around at who could possibly feed this child. And Moses's mom just Happens to be standing right there by the side of the river, and they're like, Hey, what about you? And she's like, oh, I guess I could. Um, and so Moses is raised, in a sense, by his mom as a Hebrew child, a child of this enslaved race of people that lived in the land of Egypt. But he's raised by his mom as a Hebrew child in the house of Pharaoh, as a a prince, right? As a as a son of the king. So he's both Egyptian and Hebrew. And And in his early days, Moses is conflicted and confused by his identity. It seems that there is nowhere that he belongs. But one day, this identity struggle that he was in, this crisis he was having, kind of comes into focus. He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, and he intervenes. And when he does, he accidentally kills the Egyptian and buries him. Uh, But that word gets out, and so Moses now, as a wanted man, who was kind of slandered by the Hebrew people because he was too Egyptian um, and hunted by the Egyptians for being too Hebrew. He flees. He flees far away. He goes ultimately ends up tending the sheep of who had become, his father-in-law. And he's not just in the wilderness. He's on the other side of the wilderness. He is as far away as he can go. So we have Moses, who doesn't belong anywhere, who's alienated, has moved away from his family, has moved away from... Uh, his town where he was raised and born, out of the house of Pharaoh, out of the, the home that his mother was raised, out. A person that didn't belong anywhere, a person with conflicted and confused identities. And in that place, God meets him and calls out to him and says, Moses, Moses calls him by name. Doesn't say, hey, you rando guy standing over there tending some sheep, come over here. Moses, Moses. And God says, I know you. I'm the God of your dad. I'm also the God of your ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I don't just know about you. I know you. And Moses says, okay, I know you want me to go and rescue your people, our people from the hand of Pharaoh, but like, why me? Why should I go and do this work? And God says, well, don't worry. I'll go with you. And then Moses responds back to God and says, listen, You can send me if you want. You can go with me if you want. But like, what am I supposed to say when they ask who sent me? God doesn't just call Moses by name in this moment. But God gives Moses God's name in this moment. Moses is not just known. But in this moment, God becomes known by Moses. This is a know and be known moment. It's a pivotal moment. Not just in the story of the people of God, which is why we continue to read it. But it's a really pivotal moment for the person of Moses. Just think about that for a second. This is a person who belonged nowhere on the other side of the wilderness, who all of a sudden found unconditional belonging with God. A person who belonged nowhere, belonged unconditionally to God, was not just known about, known of, but was known by name. We also see that in this moment, this person who's identity had been so conflicted over the course of he gets a restored identity not in his who he was like in his story or how his conflicted identities had kind of existed before but now he finds his identity fully in who god has called him to be he is finds his identity fully wrapped up in his in god because of their relationship with one another his identity is wrapped up in god's identity And then, out of this belonging and identity, we see that Moses has a new and clarified purpose. Belonging and identity and purpose are three things that all of us long for and hope for, right? In the same way that we are hardwired to know and be known, we are people who desire to belong, to have an identity, and to have a purpose in our life. And at the root of all of those things is this relationship that we are able to have with God. That's the undercurrent of all of Scripture. And it's the undercurrent of our life, the stuff that makes up us, what it means for us to live and move and have our being in the world around us here in 2023. All of these things are true. And and I think in this story, all of that starts with a name. The idea that God knows us by name and the idea that God desires to be known by us and not just in, in name only. If we're going to be a people in the places that we live, work, and play, who are going to reflect the love of God to those who are around us. If we are a people who desire to be a part of the kingdom of God, God's will and God's way in the world, then it has to start. It has to start with knowing and being known by God. We cannot show the love of God until we know the love of God. That work has to begin in each of us. If you're worshiping with us live at this moment, then this afternoon. Uh, if you're worshiping with us after the fact, later in the week, then this past Sunday. we're going to have a chance to unveil the work of the vision team, which for the last eight months or so um, has been doing the work on behalf of our church of discerning God's will, uh, God's vision, God's hope, God's dreams for our congregation, for our church family. Uh, They did that work with a lot of leaders in our church. They did that work with a lot of your help. Um, If you were with us back at Christmas, we had, uh, we took a congregational survey and out of all of that work has come. What we believe is a vision um, of a preferred future that God has for us, you know, five or so years out. And we're going to share all that information and hopefully you can uh, catch it live uh, this afternoon or you can uh, catch it after the fact. Uh, we will try to make some of that public as we go through the next few weeks. Um, but our goal for this year, because anything that we are to be, anything that we are to do has to begin with what God is doing in us. Uh, and so our challenge for our congregation this upcoming year uh, through VBS of 2024, uh, is this. We want to invite every person to know and be known within our church family to develop deeper relationships with God and with each other. Our goal in that is to have 400 people commit to cultivate six new meaningful relationships over the course of the next year. Those relationships could be strong ties. They could be weak ties. They will likely be a combination of the two. And we chose six because that's how many people sit at a round table when they're having dinner together at a church, you know, church event of some sort. I want to encourage you to consider what that would look like for you. Could you be one of those 400 people to commit to cultivating six new meaningful relationships with people, uh, particularly in our church family, but in the community around you would be fine as well. Because at the root of anything we are, anything we are to do, at the root of our belonging, our identity and our purpose sits this beautiful gift that God has offered us of knowing and being known, first by God and then by each other. So I'm going to ask you, what's in a name? Uh, I think a lot, and I'll invite you back over the course of the next few weeks as we continue to uh, unpack and to discover all that this might mean for us and our everyday, ordinary, walking-around lives. Blessings on you, and we'll see you next week. Well, it's been great to worship with you together during this time. Uh, we'd love to invite you to come and join us for worship in person or online, live on Sunday mornings or throughout the week. You can find more information about our worship times or worship with us online at fbumc.org. And while you're there, uh, you can find plenty of ways to connect with us, uh, whether that's uh, connecting in sort of an opportunity for community around here or serving the greater Fuquay community around us. Uh, so we'd love to invite you to join us for those uh, if this is a resource that provides you spiritual sustenance and you'd like to partner with us in making it possible for everyone else while you're there, the top right-hand corner, there's a button that says give, or you can go to fvumc.org slash give and make a gift there that makes the mission and ministry of this place possible. We're so thankful for everyone who partners with us uh, to do just that. Listen, it's been great. It's been great to be together with you uh, in this moment, and we look forward to worshiping again with you real soon. We'll see you then.